This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. All right, Gabe Amo, here we are in studio. It's now we're obviously into early voting, so you could certainly make an argument that this thing is underway. But, you know, in the in the final days here, what's the strategy for you in the home stretch? Well, first of all, Bill, thanks for having me. It's always good to be on Bartholomew Town uh, and uh, really sh- share some thoughts at longer form with voters across the district. Strategy, uh, point blank, is to talk to as many people as possible. It's what carried us over the finish line in the primary, and the strategy remains the same. And how are we doing it? I'm sure if you see uh, my social media, what we're doing on Twitter, what we're doing on Facebook, and uh, Instagram and the like, we are uh, going to events, spending time with stakeholders, everything from the Black Business Association uh, Gala uh, to trunk or treats uh, in, in every community and everything in between. So making sure we're going to events, hosting our own. We had this fabulous uh uh, brunch with Latino leaders at La Gran Parada on Broad Street, really to talk about the, the agenda uh, as it relates to uh, our our uh, Latino communities that are so vibrant here in the district. We're knocking on doors. Just yesterday, uh, in the torrential rain, it felt like I was knocking on doors with our senior senator, Jack Reed, uh, and his feet were wet just like mine were. Uh, he even held the umbrella for a bit because we're committed to get this job done. We're on the phones. We're doing phone banks. Uh, we're, we're certainly texting. So we're, we're availing ourselves of every tool uh, th- that, that is necessary to make sure that our message about m- making sure that Rhode Island sends someone to Congress who is not going to be part of the, the caucus uh, of chaos, but is instead going to be about uh, implementing critical uh, legislation to invest in our communities and making sure that we are, are stopping gun violence and working towards protecting Social Security and Medicare. That's the message. Those are the tactics. And that's how we're going to get it done in just eight days. I want to get into the issues, obviously, in just uh, just a moment. But let's talk about the race itself. There was a survey. I don't really know if you can call it a poll, but it was a survey that came out from Salve Regina, the Pell Center. It shows you have a pretty significant lead. Leonard, your opponent, Gary Leonard, has roughly 35 percent, which is by and large what you're going to get if you put your name on the ballot anywhere. So you're in a pretty comfortable spot. Uh, I saw he was out there square dancing and, you know, doing his own thing this weekend. And you wonder if there's any space in the middle that in this very blue district, very dark blue district, Congressional District 1, from a strategic standpoint, I know you're not going to let us in on state secrets here, but you must be feeling pretty good about this right now. Look, I've felt good every single day uh, of this campaign since April 18th. I got to be honest with you because I feel confident that my story, a Rhode Island story, where the son of a small business owner and a nurse uh, has the potential to take experience working for two presidents and to go to Washington and fight for Rhode Islanders every single day, that has kept me excited and, and energized. So I saw the poll. Uh, as you you noted, it shows that a lot of people have you know made a choice there because the options are stark. Uh, we've got very very clear differences, and I know that uh, most voters uh, in the district want to send a Democrat to Washington to build upon the progress that we've made as a country uh, and not go backwards. So when I when I look at it, it's something like that. I, I look at the the. The contrast of that support that I have in one survey to 
Speaker Johnson, Speaker Mike Johnson, who uh, is someone who does not represent Rhode Island values. And if if I was someone responding to one of those polls or someone who has the only poll that matters uh, to respond to, that's the ballot box, I would be saying now it's time to make my voice heard. And I encourage everybody to do so. You are going to debate on two of the three major television stations coming up in a couple of weeks. Of course, you were invited to right here on Bartholomew Town and decline that several other debates your opponent wanted 12 I'm not sure how realistic that was the argument that you put forth was at least your campaign put forth was look we're out there talking to voters we're we're using new tactics at the same time let's be honest about it this is a sort of a trend in american politics where debate is less of less front and center it's less common and and do you feel do you feel like that was the right choice to not go and and do debates you know no radio debate no newspaper debate do you feel good about that I'm excited to debate this week, Bill, uh, in, in two very widely consumed venues. Uh, I've spoke to a lot of people during the primary race. They usually identify one debate highlight, and that's that one WPRI debate where I think I you know, made it very clear uh, that I was the best option. And so uh, I'm so excited. We're going to make clear that uh, the vision of investing in people and stopping gun violence and working to uh, protect retirement security and create uh, jobs in the supply chains of the future are more important than the politics of the Republican majority in the House of Representatives that wants to ban abortions, uh, that that uh, even went so far as to vote against the bipartisan infrastructure law, bipartisan. So when we talk about what the choices are, people are going to see very clearly uh, on their TV screens uh, this week. And uh, I think that uh, as the majority of voters will make their decision on November 7th, they'll have the information they need to make it. All right. So let's get into some issues here. Obviously, right now, there's no bigger issue in global affairs than what's happening in the Middle East. So I'll start with this very basic question. Should there be a ceasefire between Israel and Palestine right now in terms of the Gaza Strip? Should there be a ceasefire? Well, essentially, and on to that question, you make a very, very uh, clear note. It, It is not the Palestinian people. We are talking about Hamas. And uh, as such, I I don't believe there should be a ceasefire at this moment uh, because we need to recognize a few basic points. One, Israel has a right to defend itself from the the aggression of Hamas, the hostages that have been taken, the, the clear blatant disregard for any human life that Hamas has demonstrated. Palestinian, Israeli, Hamas doesn't care. Uh, I don't know uh, that a ceasefire uh, prevents the the continued uh, aggression from Hamas and the, the the terrorism that they're breeding that they could fortify uh, in the event that Israel uh, is is letting down its efforts at the same time. And I want to be absolutely clear about this: there is a clear responsibility and obligation for Israel to act within international law to ensure that civilians, innocent civilians, civilians who have done nothing besides uh, uh, the the lottery of their birth, uh, they should not be harmed. We should make 
every every single effort to to reduce uh, the the loss of life, uh, and and that is what the United States's imperative should be should be as our to our ally. And you've seen this in the in in the press, and I think you know usually the press trails what's actually happening by a little bit that that the Biden administration is communicating very aggressively that it is in nobody's interest, it saves nobody's lives to be reckless in a response, and that is is what I I will hold to. But know that this is an evolving situation. It is not uh, a situation that uh, it, it invites a lot of nuance, right? We we are seeing a lot of uh, sort of Instagram active. Activism on both sides, large voices, and and we need to create some space to recognize the humanity uh, that is is at stake here, and do everything in our power to protect people and reduce hate, Islamophobia, uh, anti-Semitism that has arisen. The temperature is high, and reasonably so. This this is very high stakes, but we need to do everything in our power uh, uh, to, to move forward. And, and hopefully one day we can get to a two-state solution. But I realize the depths of the situation we're in now that prevents that. There's all but 14 U.N. nations actually want a ceasefire right now. Why do you think it is the U.S. and Australia, Canada, the U.K.? Why do they stand out in terms of this position when globally speaking, there seems to be a general consensus that the, the the objective goal of eliminating Hamas and protecting civilian lives can't be they they, they cannot be uh, decoupled at this point. Well, I think I think we then have to to be uh, a little more uh, ambitious in our aspirations for uh, for the region. Uh, there is not a consensus. In fact, and you rattled off a bunch of countries who aren't there. Uh, and so, what we actually need to do is use our military power wisely. Right? Uh, you know, it's it's it goes back to the Teddy Roosevelt maxim. You know, speak softly and carry a big stick. Uh, we need to ensure that as we engage the global community, uh, that we keep that humanitarian imperative strong. Uh, uh, it it and in fact. It can work against us, right? You don't want to breed the next generation of Hamas and terrorism. But at the same time, Hamas unanswered or a Hamas that gets a chance to intercept aid, right? Think about fuel aid in particular that powers generators, right? Important to make sure that the aid gets to the hospitals, right? I think about right the 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 people who are in hospitals who are, are be, being saved but hamas and its negative desires intercepting food aid intercepting uh, fuel aid so the regional uh, uh, support that hopefully we are able to strengthen with egypt but also that we are able to get alongside our allies to make sure that this war is is targeted focused you know whether it's the tunnels that that are underground that don't hit the, the get uh, hit by aerial warfare, whether it's the the rocket uh, cap capacities that have the ability to go even further into Israel, that those are destabilized. We need to work more strategically, and and re- and reduce the loss of lives. Last question on this specifically: Should the U.S. be taking the lead in terms of uh, any sort of negotiation, any sort of path forward? Is it the U.S.'s responsibility, obligation in terms of, of, of that world policeman type of role? Or is it better to sort of defer this to a little bit more of a neutral arbiter, someone, I don't know, Brazil, we see what Kenya is doing in Haiti. Is that, should we reimagine world uh, geopolitical negotiation in this moment to try to present a little bit more of a neutral arbiter? I mean, the U.S. and Israel are obviously 
integral integral in terms of their military strategy and in terms of the the strategic uh, positioning of Israel and of the U.S. They're interlocked. So is it is the U.S. the right person to be negotiating here? Well, know that the complexities as it relates to the Palestinian Authority are such that you have Hamas on one side uh, controlling Gaza, while on the other end, you know, Mahmoud Abbas and, and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank possess different faculties in this particular circumstance. The U.S. has been talking to both. Israel and the Palestinian Authority, knowing that Hamas is this pseudo state actor here, right? This is the complexity that doesn't get relayed. And it's incredibly important that uh, that that the U.S., as we are on the world stage, uh, can take a role. It should not be a permanent lead. Ultimately, a two state solution is going to be solved between two states. Right. However, uh, we have historically played uh, a, a role in, in, in the region. Uh, you know, you go back uh, to the, the, the early 90s and the Madrid summit. You go back uh, to, to the uh, accords with, with Arafat in the, in the mid-90s. We have played a role and, and we have to continue uh, to, to, to help facilitate. That's been a United States uh, uh, capacity and function for a while, and I appreciate that we continue to hold that space. Yeah, we could certainly get into a three-hour discussion yes, on this and could. go all the way back we to could. biblical times and, and mm-hmm. through the moment. But at, you do do you, so. Your position: no ceasefire right now, and the humanitarian aid needs to be bolstered, and the U.S. should retain its role as sort of referee, if you will. Obviously, also backing of Israel and. But you understand the plight of the of the Palestinian yeah. and, folks, and I would say the strategic and the U.S. leaning on uh, Israel for a more strategic, targeted uh, uh, response. You know, we can't tell our ally what to do, uh, but but we need to again to the humanitarian point is is to to, to be rational uh, in the response to reduce the loss of human lives. Mike Johnson's the Speaker of the House. No one's ever heard of him until last week. I mean, unless you were, you know, glued to politics, there's no doubt about it. Here's a guy who's an election denier. Here's a guy who has positions that are way outside of the mainstream. I think the Republican Party as a whole being controlled by this, let's call it far right segment. I think they're moving outside of parliamentary government with some of the positions that they have. You get into Congress, you're sworn in, Day one, is there any ground for compromise, anything of that sort, other than just on procedural matters with a Mike Johnson and to that point with a Matt Gates and the Republican Party right now, this Trumpist thing, this moment, it's 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 almost shocking that there's no moderate uh, version of the Republican Party that, uh, you know, Mitt Romney might call it the wise wing. How do you work with a Mike Johnson? There are no moderates left in the Republican Party anymore. They are governed by extremes. Matt Gates sent out a fundraising email this past weekend saying, we got our speaker. That tells you everything you need to know. The governance of uh, our country will suffer indefinitely if we continue to have a Republican uh, House majority that is more interested in abortion bans, in election denial, Right. This is the mastermind. Johnson is a mastermind of the legal argument uh, against the the election. Uh, more in, in invested in in impeding government. Right. Enforcing uh, uh, their own personal beliefs. Right. You know, taking the the uh, you know uh, Christian uh, nationalist thought and put infusing it into our politics to to really create a society where the few. Uh, are benefiting from our government instead of the many. Uh, and that is unfortunately uh, a reckless uh, for 
our our leaders to to be so extreme right it's all right to have a difference of opinion it's all right to work across party lines i believe in that i've worked on some of the most historic bipartisan legislation in our nation's history from the bipartisan infrastructure law to the bipartisan safer communities act uh, and and so much more so i i have uh, an experience working with republican mayors and governors across this country to create progress but the ones who are willing to work uh, uh, across party lines are shrinking in number and that is uh, unfortunate, but I am very jazzed about the possibility of getting to Congress uh, and finding Republican allyship. You know, I, I often cite uh, the the Republican uh, Congressperson uh, Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, who supports uh, universal background check legislation, who puts his name on the line in a district where he could lose. That's a profile in courage. Yeah. When you look at somebody who is, uh, you know, a moderate Democrat like Jared Golden uh, up in Maine, who is now in support of an assault weapons ban because of the tragedy. And let me take a moment here to acknowledge the loss of people again because we have acted on gun violence and our laws in this country. So I, I want to make partnerships. I believe in it. It's 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 part of my soul uh, and my political soul. But let's be clear. Um, there are fewer people to work with in, in Washington uh, across the, the aisle. And, and that's unfortunate for our politics. It's almost you wonder, <clears throat> pardon me, you almost wonder if there'll be a split at some point where there'll be additional parties. I mean, let's be you look at what's happening with Republican Party Again, it's hardly recognizable in terms of even from a conservative standpoint. Like you said, it's this Christian nationalist sort of, you know, working backwards on social advances of the last century type of party. There must be some version of a fiscal conservative, socially moderate person out there. And you would think that that would speak to a large chunk of the country. So you almost wonder if there's a fraction there. And then you wonder at the same time in the in the Democratic Party, where we see we call them progressives, you can call them whatever you'd like, but there's definitely two versions of a Democrat. I would put you more in that centrist category uh, that seems to be working for you here in Rhode Island. Uh, do you think that we're at a point where the parties need to be bifurcated and we end up with four political parties to rep to actually represent what's what's happening, rather than having at least the Republican Party this extremist angle, or uh, is it going to shake itself out over time? Oh, no. I, I, I Look, when Democrats had a small margin in the House, they were unified. They're unified despite the differences. Mm. Every, you know, and, and so that is really uh, the difference between us. Look at the leading Republican candidate, the likely candidate for president, our uh, you know, failed presidency of number 45, President Donald Trump. And they all fall into line for him. I don't. I don't care if it's moderate. I don't care if it, if it's it's more conservative. They all uh, pledge loyalty, and so Rhode Island cannot afford to send somebody who was going to fall into line with the agenda of someone who has based his whole uh, 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 candidacy, his whole presidency on division on showing us that we are further apart than we actually are uh, in, in our hearts. And so what I uh, think is that our um, our parties uh, are really a vehicle to, to serve our people. And when they're not serving our people, then we need to put new people in charge. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm running for Congress. All right. I know we're, uh, we've got a very short amount of time left here. We've got a busy schedule. But let's talk about Maine, but not just Maine. Let's talk about what Worcester State. Let's talk about what's happening here in Providence. And... You know, I have this 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 viewpoint where I sit on the radio on 
afternoons and you know, get a lot of these people to call up and say, well, if you ban guns, people are going to mow people down with cars like they do in Europe or uh, it's mental health exclusively or whatever the case is. But uh, I, I think even the most you know, gentle approach to solving the gun problem, you have to start to look at and like for real start to look at eliminating the access to significant weaponry. Again, people want to paint, oh, it's not an automatic, semi-automatic, it's not an assault weapon, whatever it is. AR-15, should they be available to civilians? Absolutely not. I, here's the thing. We know what is inflicting the harm. When someone loses their life, you can't bring that life back. So why do we need to play games around what is, is not a necessary uh, a component in our society? We have too many guns. We know that. We have more guns than we have people. We are the United States of America. We have done magnificent things. This is doable. We can't take it anymore. I, I, I think about all of the people whose lives have been impacted by gun violence. I think about a statistic. There was a New York Times article a few weeks back about how juvenile deaths, their number one cause, gun wounds, gunshot wounds. We are the United States of America. Let's do better. Let's do better. I, 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 you know, I, you know, hear arguments on the Second Amendment here and there. I, what I care about is a life that I can't bring back. And, and if someone can come up with a really good argument for me on that, uh, I, you know, maybe I'll listen. But I have not heard that we need weapons of war on the streets, that we need unfettered access, that we are somehow safer because of their existence. And... And that we can explain to the families who lose someone that this is okay. This is just a function of, of our system. That's not how our country uh, can be uh, the, 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 the magnificent place that it's always been uh, for, for uh, so many, a cradle uh, of opportunity and change and impact. And that's why I want to go to Congress. We have to make a difference. And, and I know the people of Rhode Island and the 1st Congressional District, uh, if they put their uh, confidence in me, I will work as hard as I can every day to do just that. Very, very quickly here, President Biden, should he run again? Yes, and I will be uh, an active supporter of his reelection campaign. Gabe Amo, running for Congress. The countdown is on. You know, um, you're, you're, like I said, your opponent went square dancing. Or is that where you're heading next? You know, I'll, I'll find wherever the cha-cha slide is happening and I'll be there. All right, sounds good. Thanks. Bartholomew Town is presented in part by Half Street Group, who bring a new generation's perspective to leadership communications, strategic public relations, and digital marketing. Half Street helps organizations and leaders take control of their own stories and manage their reputations. They get results for their clients by focusing on audience, message, and culture, and by leveraging their decade-long relationship with media and opinion leaders in the Ocean State and throughout New England. Join me and Half Street Group founder and president Mike Rea for a conversation every month about news of the day, the hottest media analysis, and a look behind the scenes at how impactful leaders drive conversations. Learn more at halfstreetgroup.com. We're brought to you in part by Navigant Credit Union. As Rhode Island's first ever member-owned credit union, Navigant Credit Union has been a staple in the local business community for more than 108 years. Today, Navigant is a $3.4 billion institution serving more than 136,000 members across 25 physical branch locations. But since its founding in 1915, the mission has never changed. 
Navigant Credit Union's team of financial professionals have remained committed to improving the financial well-being of the families, businesses, and communities they serve across Rhode Island. Learn more at NavigantCU.org. We're also brought to you by CCA Health RI. Commonwealth Care Alliance, or CCA, is a multi-state integrated care system influencing innovative models of complex care nationwide. CCA's Uncommon Care model focuses on sustainable and evidence-based health care breakthroughs that improve the health and well-being of people with significant needs. And it's consistently recognized as one of the best models in the country at identifying and serving traditionally hard-to-reach individuals. CCA is excited to bring Uncommon Care to Rhode Islanders with a range of Medicare Advantage plans. Learn more at commonwealthcarealliance.org backslash Rhode Island.